Father, we come this morning to you desperate to hear from you. As we look at your word, as we listen to your spirit, would you speak to us? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see, hearts to be soft and transformed into your likeness? Thank you that you are a God that pursues us, a God who restores us, a God who moves us from shame to acceptance through the blood of Jesus as we sang about this morning. Would you help us feel that this morning as we look at the text? We ask that you would meet us in a way that only you can. We pray it in your name. Amen. Well, I grew up going to public school, and there are a couple things about public school that you need to be aware of that are important, especially as you exit elementary school and you move into junior high and high school. There's some times in your life during that span that are more important than others. A random Tuesday in geometry class is not one of those days. Like, I, I didn't need it then, I don't need it now, it's kind of whatever those those are. But then there's other days that are like, oh, if you don't get this right, it's going to impact the rest of your social life. You know what that day is, right? It's that first week when you walk into that space in junior high because all the elementary schools have kind of funneled into this junior high and you walk into that large room, maybe the largest room on campus, the lunchroom. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about. You walk in there and that first week you have to make strategic decisions about where you will sit because where you will sit will probably connect you socially for the next six years of your school career. And you guys have seen this in the movies, right? These high school movies that portray this, where it's like a new kid moves into town and some random kid befriends them and they're kind of walking them through the dynamics of the lunch space and they're going, well, you don't want to sit at that table because those people, uh, stay away from that. This is the table you really want to gun for. If you can sit at this table, then you'll arrive, right? And at some point throughout the movie, that person gets invited into that table and all of the things ensue, right? Because something about sitting with people at a table eating, man, it's more than just sitting and opening up your lunch and eating a sandwich in, in high school and junior high. You're connecting yourself with the people at those tables. It's not always been like that for high school. We can go further back to see what a table a food table actually represents. And in the passage we're in this morning in the Old Testament, we see that time and time again in the culture. Sky Jitani says it this way. He says, ancient Israel used the table to define a person's community and identity. Who you ate with determined your social status and your destiny. And being welcomed to the table was also a powerful sign of unity and reconciliation. Maya Angelou puts it this way. She says, eating is so intimate. It's very sensual. When you invite someone to sit at your table, you want to cook for them, you're inviting a person into your life, right? We can recognize, again, that there's something deeper happening when you get invited and you get to sit at certain tables. But why don't we get invited into certain tables at times? Some of it's control, and like, again, the powerful and popular kids have some type of control, and so they're deciding whether they want to invite you to the table or not invite you to the table. But what happens when you do get invited to the table? Let's imagine you finally get invited to that table that you're after in junior high, 
and you're on your way to the lunchroom and somehow you slip and you fall in mud and you just have mud all over your clothes and you start to have this conversation in your mind, like, I'm going to get invited to that table, but I look like a mess. And then you start having these conversations in your head of like, well, I got to clean myself up. Why? Because if I get invited, what if I embarrass myself? What if I embarrass the table? And what if I don't get invited back? Right? That happens all the time in the midst of the tables we try to join and the tables we get invited to. And what we're going to see in our story this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 9, this is a story about someone who is soaked in shame and he gets invited to the table. And he doesn't get invited to the table because of anything he does, none of his own merit, none of his own effort, but he gets invited to the table based on the loving kindness of the king. And I don't know if you've been following along in our series, those that that come every Sunday, we've been walking through the series called We Want a King as we track through the rise and fall of the first three kings of Israel's nation, this man named Saul, this man named David, and this man named Solomon. And if you've been reading along with us and you read the 13 verses in chapter 9, hopefully if you've been around the Bible at all, you saw the beautiful foreshadowing and picture. Because this story, these 13 verses might be the most beautiful picture of the coming king in Jesus in the whole Old Testament. And hopefully we see that this morning as we unpack it together. So if you have a Bible, it's not already open, open it to first, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be reading through the first 13, the only 13 verses in chapter 9, and trying to talk about how does this apply to us this morning. And again, we've been walking through this series of We Want a King, and we've been seeing David as he's rising, as Saul is kind of in this downward spiral of pride and insecurity and disobedience. God takes his spirit away from Saul, and he puts it on David. And David does unbelievable things, unspeakable things, things that show God's character. But as he gains power and becomes the king in the beginning of 2 Samuel, if you've been tracking along, and if you've been paying attention you'll see the cracks in his character start to show. That the narrator is starting to show there's these little erosions in David's character as he gets power, which is actually going to lead to his downfall in chapter 11, which we'll cover next week. But for David in this chapter, this is kind of the height of his rise. In this chapter, he models what it looks like to be a good king, to be a gracious king, to model what it looks like to follow the king of the Bible in Jesus. So that's where we are. So let's pick it up. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says this. And David said, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Zibiah. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Zibiah? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there, still, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Zibiah said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. Let's stop there just for a moment and give some context for who Zibiah is referring to. He's referring to a man named Mephibosheth. And we get introduced to Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. It's only one verse. It's real quick. And if you remember what happens, how we get introduced to him is Saul, his grandfather, and Jonathan, his father, Mephibosheth's father, they're fighting in the battle of Gibeah. And they end up dying. 
Word gets back to his house, Jonathan's house. The text tells us in verse 4 of chapter 4 that he's five years old. And in the midst of him being five years old, his caretaker picks him up and rushes because all of a sudden the king and the king's son are dead. They might come for us. And so she picks him up and it says in her haste, she falls and she drops him. He's five years old and it breaks both of his feet. Says he becomes lame. So he cannot walk. So that's who Meshivatheth is. Verse 4 of chapter 9 says, The king said to him, Where is he? And Zibia said to the king, He is in the house of Makar, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Makar and the son of Emil at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Meshibbetheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you with all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Then the king called Zibiah, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all his house that I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring him in the produce, that your master's grandson, that your master's grandson may have all the bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Zibiah had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Zibiah said to the king, according to all that my lord, the king commands his servants, so will your servants do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table, at, at David's table, like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Zibiah's house became Meshibbeth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Let's look at three movements of this story, of these 13 verses, of what we see foreshadowing the ultimate king that we get to serve as we look at the king and David and his movements in this. The first thing that we need to recognize, if you're taking notes, is that this is a story about a king who pursues. A king who who pursues. We see it in verse 1. David is pursuing. He's going after Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is sitting back. He's not looking for David. He's kind of maybe hiding. We see what city he's in, but he has nothing to bring to the table. David is the one pursuing him. And the beauty of this foreshadowing is that if you follow the God of the Bible, you have a king that pursues you. He pursues you even when you don't pursue him. He's pursuing you. This God of the universe that created all things, the land and the sea and the way a good donut tastes, he's pursuing you even when you don't pursue him. This is all throughout the Bible that we need to catch attention to, that we need to pay attention to because no other God operates like this. In all of religion, no other God pursues humans, the creation, but God does. He's a king that pursues. 
And I love this passage in Genesis chapter 3, if you're familiar with the Bible, the beginning of the story, Adam and Eve, God's creation, and God gives them all the things, and he says, there's one thing I don't want you to do. I don't want you to eat of this tree. It's not going to be good for you, but they get tricked into believing that their way is better. They ignore God's warning, and they disobey God. And because of that, there's consequences. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Talking about Adam and Eve, and it said, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? This is the question. This is the question that a pursuing king asks of his people. Where are you? It's the same question he's asking you this morning. Where are you? Now, we believe the God of the Bible, the king of the Bible, he, he knows all things. And so he's not going to Adam and Eve, and it's this kind of game of hide and seek. And, man, they had a really good hiding spot. And God's walking, going, like, I don't, I don't know where they are. I can't find them. No, he knows exactly where they are. So why is he asking the question, where are you? It's for their benefit. He's asking for Adam and Eve to go, where are you? We're meant to be in relationship with each other. We're meant to walk together. We're meant to live together. And now you are hiding. You put up a barrier away from me. The same thing is true with King David as he is pursuing his subject. What does it say in verse 4? Where is he? So the question for you this morning is where are you? That's the constant question God will come back to in your life is where are you? Are you connected with me? Are you walking with me? Or because of your shame, because of your sin, because of how you're feeling, you're hiding from me. We have a king that will pursue us, man, even when we don't pursue him. We also have a king in this story that will restore us. That's the second point. We have a king that pursues and we have a king that restores we see that King David restores Mephibosheth back to land, back to uh, status. He restores him when Mephibosheth doesn't have anything again to bring to the table. Why does the king do this? There's clues in the text all over, especially this word kindness that shows up time and time again. It shows up in verse 1, it shows up in verse 3, it shows up in verse 7. This is why David is pursuing and looking to restore him is because of his kindness. Now, if you've been around the Old Testament a while, and if you've read the Old Testament a while, there's a word that continually will show up in the original language in the Old Testament, which is in Hebrew. It's this word hased. This word hased means loving kindness. And all of these words are defining this idea of hased, which is what shows up in verses 1, verses 3, and verses 7. Now, this is a hard word for us to translate into English, it's kind of like the word shalom. We've talked about it here before. This idea of the word shalom gets translated into English as peace. But man, it's so much more than peace. It's so much more than kind of like a ceasefire between enemies. Shalom means rightness. Everything is in its right order. Totally complete. That's what shalom means. And this word hased is, again, hard to translate because of all these different definitions, and really what it gets after, it's kind of two major ideas, is this idea of love and this idea of commitment. That's what hased is, that God's loving kindness, his loyal love towards his subjects. And this love is confusing for us. It's confusing for us because 
Usually when we talk about love in our culture, we talk about this idea of like contract love. Now we wouldn't say that, but that's kind of how we operate. We operate like love is like a contract. We have a contract here with this property that we're sitting on. We're in a lease for 10 years with this property and we have like an 80 page contract that says we will do this and they say we will do this. And if we break our end of the contract, we have freedom to walk away. And they have freedom to walk away. That's contract. And that's sometimes how we treat love. We go into this idea with love, whether it's friendship, it's romantic, it's work-related, and we go, okay, if you do your end and I do my end, we're good. That's not the love that the Bible's describing here. This has said love is not contract language, it's covenant language. It's this idea that the subject who is receiving the hased, it doesn't matter how you behave. Because it's not based on your behavior as a subject, it's based on the giver's will. Saying like, I am going to love you no matter what. No matter what you do, no matter how you act, I still love you. That's a different type of way to live. If you live in that hased, you realize that God, because of his covenant love and because of the covenant that David has with Jonathan that we see in 1 Samuel chapter 20, they make this covenant, this bond, and Jonathan says, listen, you're going to be king one day. Please don't wipe out my family. And Jonathan, or David says, I won't do it. They bind in this covenant together. So when David is searching, the king is pursuing, he's going like, I'm going to restore you no matter what you do. Could you imagine if we started to live like that in our relationship with God? That we really believed that our shame doesn't take us away from God, that our sin doesn't take us away from God. If we're under the covenant, which we'll talk about how you get under the covenant of Jesus in a minute. But if you really understood that, then you could still move forward and not feel guilty, not feel like you have to clean yourself up before you get to God because it's not based on you. It's based on him. It's based on his love for you. It's a beautiful picture of what David is doing for Mephibosheth's chef. It's true. So how do we get into this covenant versus this contract language, even specifically with the God of the Bible? My wife and I, we got married 22 years ago. And before we were married, we were engaged, which makes sense. And we had a date on the calendar. So intellectually, we knew we were going to get married. We had the date on the calendar. We had the venue reserved. We were in love. I mean, we were in love. There were feelings, all types of feelings there. But when did we become married? Legally. We didn't become married, even though we felt in love, and even though we intellectually knew that we were going to get married. We didn't become married until we stood up in front of other people and we made an act of our will to say, I commit to you. Where's my wife? I commit, not my Matt. I commit to you. That got weird for a second there. Sorry about that, Matt. The same is true in your relationship with this new covenant that you have under Jesus. It's not enough just to feel like you're connected to God and have an experience. It's not enough to just intellectually know what the Bible says. You have to make an act of your will to step across the line and say, yes, I will receive your sacrifice for my sins. I will make a decision to intentionally follow you to the best of my abilities, which I will fail. Just like we did the child dedications. You're making an intentional move to say, I'm going to do my best to enter into this covenant relationship. But you have to make an act of your will. That's how you become a Christian. That's how you become born again. 
that's important for us not to miss in the midst of this context, in the midst of this story. Mephibosheth, he comes to the table. He gets invited and he moves towards it. So we see that we have a king that pursues even when we don't pursue him. We have a king that restores. And then the last thing we see is we have a subject that moves from shame to approval. We have a subject, subject that moves from a shame to approval. How does Mephibosheth, man, I've been practicing all week. <laughs> Mephibosheth, how does he feel? How do you think he feels when David calls him? to himself. You look at the text, he probably feels scared, right? He bows down and David says what to him? Don't fear. He's probably afraid because he's thinking, the king is summoning me so that he can kill me, which was practiced in this time. So he's probably got a good healthy dose of fear. He has shame. We see that in the text. If you look back down at your Bible and he says in verse 8, and I'm, I'm like a dead dog. This is a, an expression we've seen in the text before, going like, I'm like nothing. Like, this doesn't make sense. He has shame on him. He probably has fear because he knows in the presence of a king, he should be dead. And that's how we should feel coming into the presence of a holy God. That if we're apart from him because of our sin, we should have this fear in us. We should have this shame in us until we come under the covenant of Jesus. We have a preaching collective at Redemption as a part of 10 congregations, as we mention every week and um, every Wednesday, 10 days before the message, we all get together. The guys in Tucson and Flagstaff zoom into the meeting and all the other people that preach the text. We get together for an hour and kind of walk through, man, what are the sticking points? What are the troubles? Where's the gospel in the text? It's super, super helpful. And then when we start a series, we usually bring in some type of expert to kind of help us walk through. Here's the main themes we need to kind of be aware of. And so before we started this series, We Want a King, we brought in this Old Testament scholar. Man, this dude, he's amazing. His name's David Bellman. He came in and he talked to us about what this series was about and what we need to pay attention to. And we've talked about this multiple times if you've been with us. We need to pay attention to names, right? Names play a drastic part of the storytelling that the Old Testament is doing that we sometimes, it just goes right by. I can't even pronounce it. It just goes right by. So in that context, let's look at this clue that the narrator is leaving for us in the midst of this story. Tim Chester says it this way in his commentary on this passage. He says, the meaning of Mephibosheth is unclear. It could mean one who scatters shame or from the mouth of shame. But what is clear is that it incorporates the word shame, just as Ishsabeth, can't say that one either, his name did. Moreover, Mephibosheth is currently living in Lodabar, which means no word or nothing. He lives nowhere in a place so insignificant its name is no name. He is a man of shame in a place of shame. That's how he comes into the story. Man, I love this last verse, verse 13. We could just sit on this whole verse. Let's read it again. It says, so... Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. So it gives us a placement where he lives now. He doesn't live in Lodabar, this place of nothing. He lives in Jerusalem. What does Jerusalem mean? It means city of peace. 
So now he's moved into a city of peace, and he always eats at the king's table. Man, and I love this last sentence of this verse. Man, it seems like a throwaway, and you kind of scratch your head if you're reading the Bible, and you're going like, why is this put in here? That he's lame in both feet? We already established his story. We already established that, like, what is this about? And it might be projecting on the text a little bit in, in this context, but man, the reason I think this last sentence is in this story, now he was lame in both feet, so it says he comes and eats at the table, the king's table every day. How does he get to the king's table? He ain't walking there. How does he get to the king's table? To participate in the goodness and the richness of the king that he gets to eat every single day. Somebody carries him. If you believe in this king that pursues you and this king that restores you and you get to move from shame to acceptance, somebody has to carry you to that table context of our Christian community, do you know we have to carry each other? Not only that, but we still come in our brokenness. It doesn't say his legs or his feet work magically. We come down to this table to receive communion, to be reminded of our fellowship, our relationship with God. We come in brokenness. We come with our shame. We come and we ask people to kind of hold us up and bring us down, understanding who we are now that we're in Christ under this new covenant. Man, that's good. Even as we were singing this morning and the idea that, man, we were a prisoner, but now we're free. Not just in our salvation, that's true. But man, I'm a prisoner in all kinds of ways. I'm a prisoner to your ideas of me. I'm a prisoner to how I parent my kids. But under the new covenant, I'm not a prisoner to that. I can be free because of what Jesus says, because of the hased, the loving kindness that when Jesus sees me come down this aisle and take a piece of bread which represents his body and dip it in this juice which represents his blood, he sees his son as I walk down. And he doesn't see my shame. He doesn't see my sin that I see, that I don't want to walk down, I just want to pretend, or man, I screwed it up again. He sees Jesus. And that ought to give me freedom to move towards the table, right? I don't know if some of you, you're visiting, and if you've noticed when you walked in, our outside doors are painted red. That's a color intentional. That's a tradition in the Christian church. If you look at these old churches all over the country, most of their doors are painted red. Why are our doors painted red? The reason our doors are painted red is because you enter this space, the family of God, under the blood of Jesus that you don't strive for your acceptance, you don't look a certain way for your acceptance, you don't get your acceptance from what other people say or don't say about you, you get it from your covenanted relationship with Jesus. So when you walk in, you're fully accepted, which allows you to be a mess, which is really, really helpful. We were in our redemption community last week that Garrett and Haley Mort lead. And Garrett had great questions for us to kind of kick off the season. And he said, like, what do you want to get out of this community and what do you want to give out of this community great questions and the second question as we went around the group there's probably 13 people in the living room you know what half of the people said in that living room i want to give more of my full self that i could take down the mask that i could be real that i could be a mess and you can do that if you remember who you are in jesus you can do that as you come through the blood of the lamb and you enter into this family of God, you're able to be a mess. 
And God says, this is how I see you, through my son. And that's how David saw Mephibosheth in the midst of his covenant with him. He said, come down, even in your brokenness. Somebody needs to carry you down. We need each other in this moment. Because again, as we close, man, it's like, I talk to a lot of you. And a lot of you go like, well, it's hard to be in this community because I look over here, man, these people look like they're perfect. They have it all together. And you know what? I talk to these same people you're just talking about, and you know what they say? Man, these people look like they're perfect, like they have it all together. Let me help you out. None of us have it together. <laughs> I know those people. I know their stories. I know their struggles. They don't have it together. You're making an assumption that they have it all figured out, and they're making an assumption you have it all figured out. Let's stop playing this game that we have it all figured out. None of us have it figured out. <laughs> but what we do have is the blood of Jesus to call ourselves children of God, to move in freedom. That's a beautiful thing. We need to be reminded of that. We need to rehearse that. That's why we get together every Sunday. That's why we take communion at this table every Sunday, that we get invited, that we don't have to clean ourselves up before we show up because Christ has already made us clean. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your goodness. As we prayed and we sang this morning, I just kept thinking about my own life. God, and how you pursue me even when I pursue you. How you restore me because of your loving kindness, not because of any other thing. And I look around and I look at the people in the room and I look at a person like John Gusick and I know him before he knew you in high school. And I look at his life now. And God, your loving kindness is all over who he is. Thank you for moving us from a place of shame to a place at your table, a place of approval. Help us be reminded of that this morning as we respond to your goodness and your loving kindness that never changes. We ask that you would be with us. We pray it in your name. Amen.